You're listening to So What? The podcast that explores why library and information science research matters. We interview researchers about their work. And they connect the dots between what they do and its importance to your life. Okay, let's get on it. Welcome to the So What podcast. I'm your host, Alex Mayhew, and today we have a project from the University of Western Ontario at the FIMS faculty. That's the Faculty of Information and Media Studies. Uh, So we have the whole team here, and I'd like them to introduce themselves and then tell us a bit about the project as we go forward. Hey, my name is Sophia Baraldo. I am currently a fourth year student studying media information and techniculture in the Faculty of Information and Media Studies. And I'm one of the undergraduate students who is part of this research team today. Hi, my name is Chelsea Kubri Fort, and I am currently a student of the MMJC program, which is Master of Media in Journalism and Communications. Um, and I am part of the communications aspect of this research project, and I'm one of the graduate students. Hi, my name is Erin Isings. My professional background is in marketing communications, where I've held a variety of roles. And I've been teaching communications in the MMJC program here at Western for the past five years. Hi, my name is Katrina Desjardins. Um, I'm going into my fourth year studying media information and technoculture at uh, FIMS as well. And I am one of the other undergraduate students working on this project. Hi there, I'm Kate McCandless. I am in the Master of Library and Information Science program at Western. And um, this has been fabulous. (laughs) Hi, I'm Pam McKenzie and um, I'm the one who came up with the project. I teach and do research in library and information science at Western and have been on faculty at FIMS full time since the year 2000. Excellent. Well, I want to thank all of you for uh, joining us today, and I'm sure our audience is very curious to, well, first of all, let's know what this project is all about. Well, our project is really an intersection between um, the public library and the media. We were curious about how public libraries balance incongruent values, such as preserving high culture versus providing access to more inclusive or popular collections. And as you would expect, there are many different stakeholders at play here, whether it be the library board or those who use the public library. And these all pe- these people all have differing opinions about what the public library is and what it should be. And in an environment where public libraries are increasingly called upon to justify their economic value, this discussion has really attracted the attention of broader stakeholders, which includes the mass media. So we've decided to go through newspaper articles um, from the Globe and Mail since 1860 um, that mention the public library to get a little bit of a bird's eye view on this uh, discussion. Fascinating. Uh, So why did you want to do this project? Uh, How did this project come to be? Well, I think that we all had our own existing relationships with the public library. I mean, we had all grown up with the public library in our lives in some form. And it's really interesting to consider how our own perspectives on the public library differ, but also how those perspectives have been shaped by media and shaped over time. So this was an interdisciplinary project. It was designed to include MLIS, MMJC, and MIT students. And it was appealing for all of us because there's both the media aspect and the libraries aspect. And we wanted to do this project because we all care 
about the public library and about why it matters in society. Now, what's interesting is that Pam has learned about comms and I've learned so much about research. I know there's a lot of additional pressure on researchers to share findings. And so I've been really happy to contribute to that sharing. And I'm also really grateful for the opportunity to learn about research, to have students learn about research and knowledge mobilization. And this project has created opportunities for them there to do that. If I could uh, deviate from script for a moment here, I'm actually a bit curious. You said uh, you all have um, personal experiences. Um, Aaron, would you, if you're willing, be able to share maybe a personal experience about a library that was uh, meaningful to you that might be uh, motivated you on this project? Well, Alex, my mom was a librarian uh, when yes. I was growing up, and that library was a place where I spent a lot of time, and I have many, many happy memories of programs at the library. The library was a place where I could escape, um, you know, from my busy household. The library was a place of solace, and it was it was just a really special place for me. I can relate to that. Uh, I am similarly in the situation where my mom was a public librarian, and uh, they definitely hold a special place in my heart as well. Did someone else want to uh, share one of their experiences? Yeah, so um, I live really close to a public library. It's just about a one kilometer walk from my house. So I have really fond memories growing up of my mom or another mom in the neighborhood just rallying up all of the kids in the summer and walking to the public library and taking part of the summer reading program. That was always one of the highlights of the summer because um, it was always so exciting to see what new books there were and to sit down with the librarian and discuss what you were reading. And it really growing up made me feel, um, it made me feel more grown up. It made me feel like I was doing something important. That's <laughs> uh, that's one of the great effects that a library can have. I love it. Um, all right. so. Next thing I want to know is how did you find working together? Were there any uh, noticeable differences in perspectives or highlights of uh, interdisciplinary insight? Um, so what I think is interesting is that I joined the group in January as research began to wrap up and begin to develop a communications plan and um, approach to you know knowledge mobilization. And um, it's really interesting what I've been able to see from the team that has, you know, a combination of so many different faculties, you know, work, working together, sorry, programs, uh, working together has been great so far. It's interesting to come together from different parts of the same faculty to work on a project together, and you're able to see so many variety of perspectives. You know, I myself knew very little about library and information science before, but the research and communications aspect of this project are ways that we can learn from one another. And you know this project is a conjoined, conjoined effort between library sciences, communications, and information and media, media studies. And in many ways, the learnings derived from MIT, which I was in as well, I, I did my undergrad at MIT, those are necessary in deconstructing and understanding data that comes from a source of media, that, such as the Globe and Mail articles, which is what we delved into. So it's interesting how I've you know, personally been within the FIMS faculty for five years and I felt completely disconnected from LIS until this project. And, you know, this project has been a way for the multiple programs within FIMS to interact in a meaningful way. And it's the bridging of information studies and media studies together, which, you know, it's in the title, but that's not necessarily the case. <laughs> um, they're pretty separate otherwise. Um, 
So additionally, I think as we have refocused on communications in the past couple months, it has been a learning experience for the team to understand how to communicate potentially dense work to a large audience in a very digestible manner. And for example, our work on our poster for the Canadian Association for Information Science Conference was a way that we definitely were able to learn from one another in communicating research content um, and to put that onto a poster. So oftentimes research posters can feel indigestible, but we came together with the content and an ambitious visual outline to bridge the two. And we received great feedback on this. We were very, very happy about it. Um, and so we found that you can make really thoughtful and creative things when you have an interdisciplinary team like ours. That's fantastic. It's great when um, you know working together lets you find new ways to translate uh, the required material to the, to the greater public. I want to push you a little bit further and ask you a little bit about, say, um, perhaps differences in research methods. Uh, did you notice anything? Was one group very qualitative and one very quantitative, to use overly uh, simplistic uh, terminology? I've got this one. Um, I, I think, so, so I made sure or when, I, when I hired the MLIS student and the undergraduate students, I made sure to hire people who had had um, the research methods course already. So we're a little bit familiar with different methods that they might use for, um, for analyzing media data. And we didn't actually really, now that I'm thinking back, we didn't talk very much about, about quantitative. Um, and, we, and we focused on qualitative analysis. And I think it's because of how diverse our sample was and the kinds of things that we were finding. So we were finding everything from you know, news stories, hard news stories about uh, the public library burning, catching fire and burning down, to um, reports of the library board that included everything, every decision that the board had made to this hilarious comic from the 1940s that um, had two young women roommates complaining to one another about, you know, one, one's her, how cheap her boyfriend was because he took her to the library as a place for a date. <laughs> so um, we really, we really focused on a qualitative analysis, looking at the overall stories that our items were telling about the, the public library and its values. Excellent. Uh, if you actually send me that uh, photo later, I will make sure that it's included in the uh, show notes. All right. Uh, so I think this is the, um, the, the crux of it that we really want to get to now is what did you find after all this research? Yeah, so like Pam said, we had uh, quite a large sample size that we were going through, you know, almost 800 articles that gave us a, a very diverse set um, but we did find a couple uh, discursive responses or themes that have persisted over time, um, but their nature or character or specificity may have changed. So the first is that the public library is a place for community. So it's a, a showcase building that signals a, uh, a city status in terms of its architecture or communicating um, what kind of uh, other resources that that city might have, um, as well as acting as kind of a community living room. So a place where people turn to during hard times like economic downturn and a safe haven for those who may not have anywhere else to go. So we, th we saw this with uh, returning soldiers in the 1930s, um, as well as a place for immigrants and the homeless to go to, which we still see today, as well as a place for uh, leisure and recreation. So a place to unwind, escape to, uh, like Aaron was saying, as well as a place for, you know, children's story times. Um, 
And the second being that the library is a place for quality. So early, early in our sample set, this uh, appears in debates about the appropriateness of fiction in the library. Um, and that kind of continues up until the late 1900s. Um, and then we kind of move into uh, what kinds of different resources can be provided. And we also see uh, the role of the library in educating the working class. So being a place that supports individual self-improvement and community education. Um, and in this maintains high standards for library workers and, and users in, in terms of uh, intellectual, cultural standards. So in terms of the legitimate resources themselves that the public library is providing, as well as the behavioral expectations. And something really interesting that we uh, noted as kind of a thread throughout our research was this idea of the tavern and the public library. So there was a series of articles in the 1890s about the public library as a place to save young men uh, from the trashy bar room. So uh, being a place to uh, a community resource for those uh, young men, as well as elevating them rather than being, you know, the tavern where young people go, where the trash kind of is taken out. Um, but then in 2010, there was a featured article about a bar opening at the downtown Toronto reference library with a 16,000 square foot salon serving alcoholic beverages. So these themes, you know, can be contradictory or create tensions between themselves at times. Um, and they're definitely themes that we can see throughout history uh, in terms of a public library, but it's still been uh, very interesting um, in terms of researching. Fascinating. Well, I, I want to touch on that uh, themes of tension. So you're, you're mentioning that, um, Public libraries can espouse a set of values that may not be entirely congruent. So preserving high culture, um, the great works of literature versus providing access to inclusive collections. Um, how do you think uh, your research shows that people should respond to that or libraries should respond to that? Or do you have any views yourself independent of the research? Yes, yeah, so kind of building off of what Katrina was discussing there's all these uh, seemingly contradictory values that are communicated to stakeholders in one way or another. Um, so building off of this kind of education versus entertainment thread, um, you know, this comes down to like, should we be reading the latest Stephen King or should we be reading the great works of Tolstoy? Um, <laughs> where where do these materials belong in our education of the public? And is it even the, the public library's duty to educate the public? Um, this is something that actually kind of came up a lot in, in discussions of blending the, uh, uh, the public library system with the school board. Um, and their funding and who should kind of control the materials that go in there. So, you know, some of these things, they're not necessarily completely against each other. Um, some of these things, I think we who are in um, the library world need to kind of find this balance. Um, so, you know, we're in a state now where we're no longer in this kind of oppressive stillness that <laughs> came up in quite a few articles from the 1800s. And, you know, now when you walk into a library, um, there can be a whole concert happening in the main room. There are 3D printers going, there are kids who are playing. It's, it's not just this place of, of your hair turning gray anymore and sitting in silence and reading hard, heavy books. Um, so, you know, there's lots of different people coming in and we have to kind of find that balance between what people actually want to do at their public library. Um, so if we 
kind of turn back to what Katrina was mentioning about the, uh, you know, how things can change in times of hard times um, in unemployment. You know, there's a lot of people who are facing homelessness who do come into the library, but then that same building may have a lot of children's programs going on. And there's these different behavioral rules that all these different people have to navigate while still existing in that same space. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think a lot of libraries are struggling with this right now. How do we find that balance? You know, I, I don't think we should respond the way that we did back in the 1800s with uh, the Toronto Public Library. They decided to fit up a room in the basement for the homeless and the unemployed so they could sleep and smoke without bothering their, um, their, their business people who are using the library. Um, so, you know, this, this emphasizes that things are changing. Um, this emphasizes that they also stay the same. We're going to have these, you know, history repeats itself. We're going to have these threads coming back. We're going to have these, these issues reemerging. And, um, you know, we have to respond in the library. We have to take a clear look at the community around us and try to meet them where they're at, not necessarily try and, uh, you know, force them down a certain path of education. We have to serve them where they are. Okay, uh, I just want to dive a little bit deeper into that if I can. Um, do you think that it's useful to try and look for general trends, say across the whole country or maybe even across the world? Or is it more useful to think about um, the sorts of uh, confluence of events in individual libraries to tailor the, the specific requirements to the specific location? Well, you know, that's a good question. Um, I think there are general trends that we've seen. I think um, Pam, I believe, is going to mention another project she's working on that kind of touches on this. And I think there are certainly are large scale global trends or, or large scale country trends, province trends, for sure. But from what I've been learning in, in some of my other coursework, you know, you really have to identify the kind of champions in your community and really work with them directly to make the changes that will impact those around you. You know, what might work for Toronto Public Library is not gonna work for Bruce County. Um, it's a very different demographic. It's very different area. You, you, can't, you can't expect the same solutions will work at every location. So I think it's important to highlight these global trends, put them on people's radar, help them kind of understand things they should maybe look for, but you really have to meet your specific community where they are. And maybe that's at the, the library system level. Maybe that's at the specific branch locations. It, it will really depend on your place. <laughs> I know that's kind of wishy-washy, but you know, I all of this information reasonable. can help. I think that's pretty reasonable for sure. Uh, well, speaking of uh, uh, how this fits into um, uh, other projects, um, what comes next with this? Like, how does this fit into what's uh, gone before and where does it go after this? So this project is part of my bigger research agenda and public libraries have been part of my um, overall research agenda for several years, beginning with the study of early learning programs for very young children and their caregivers in public libraries that I started with Lynn McKechnie and uh, Roz Stuke. And Roz and I noticed that staff and caregivers sometimes understood these programs to have different purposes. So for example, staff might see them as opportunities to build young children's literacy, to support bonding between young children and caregivers. 
and to recruit new and ideally lifelong library users. Many caregivers, though, treated them as a nice thing to do with babies, a way to get out of the house, um, and an opportunity to gain social support from other caregivers. For many of the parents, these programs at the library were only one of a number of things that they might do with their babies. So we had one lovely quote where the, the mom said, well, Mondays we do swimming, Tuesdays we do library, Wednesdays we do music. So for them, the, the library program had very different purposes. And this, these differences in the purposes that the staff and the, and the participants saw could lead to some frustration. So for example, we saw some, some times when the leader was expecting caregivers to be paying attention to the story and helping their children to understand the story. But for the parents, it was more important to be socializing with the other caregivers because for them, the value was of, of this as a social time and space. And Rosa and I found that differences in purposes could sometimes lead to marginalization. For example, we went to some programs that were in branches and locations that were designed to target lower income um, families. But we found that better resourced parents used their social networks to help them sign up for programs all around town. And they often had access to cars, which let them take spaces in programs in the, in the branches in the lower income neighborhoods. And we also found uh, marginalization happening inadvertently despite people's best efforts. So a lot of early learning programs use things like nursery rhymes as a way to introduce literacy skills and concepts to young children. And that works great if you're fluent in English and if you come from a tradition that a cultural tradition that nursery rhymes are part of. But we found that programs that emphasize caregiver child bonding may not give out printed words to the rhymes for fear that they'd get in the way of the caregiver's interaction with the child. And we saw how that really disadvantaged a parent whose first language wasn't English and couldn't really participate in the program unless she had the support of, of the words, even though it was sort of the program's policy not to give the words out. And then uh, more recently, Jackie Burkell and I received research funding from FIMS, and we worked with Janet Allen, who at the time was an MLIS student and is now a doctoral student, to do a small concept mapping study. First, we surveyed an anonymous group of folks for their statements about why the public library is valuable. And we compiled these into a set of statements, um, and we asked library staff members and library users to concept map them, to group them into clusters in, in whatever ways made sense to them. And um, we're now in the process of writing the article out of that, looking at the similarities and differences um, between staff and users and uh, patterns in how people see the, the public library. And before COVID, I was talking with an international colleague about the possibility of doing that concept mapping in another country. And, and we're also interested in thinking about what policies, legislations, government funding announcements say about the public library and why it's valuable and how that lines up with or doesn't line up with what's happening on the ground. So given that uh, this is COVID times, I don't know whether that's going to happen or not, but it's definitely an area that I would like to explore in, in some way. Fair enough. Um, I mean, you've already been sort of gesturing in this area, but I mean, the uh, title of the podcast is So What? So I got to ask the So What question, even though I think you're already already pointing in the right direction. Uh, why does this project matter? And uh, what should librarians, other researchers, and the general public take away from it? 
So I'm going to start and then I'm going to give the last word to Sophia. So uh, first, before I do that, I want to really give a shout out to FIMS for undergraduate fellowship funding to uh, so that we could assemble this fantastic team of researchers and communicators for the fall and winter term. And um, we found at the end of, of April, we had our results and we hadn't really had time to communicate them as much as we'd hoped to. And we were able to, I was able to use some of my FIMS faculty scholar funds. And we applied to, Erin and I applied to Research Western for um, under, undergraduate student research assist internships. And, for, and we just found out today that we got a knowledge mobilization innovation grant to let us keep funding our students until August. So, um, so before, I, before I deal with the so what, I wanna make sure that we acknowledge all the fabulous funding opportunities that we've had that have made this work possible. Absolutely. So in general, um, I think that this offers us, you know, it's a very small scale study, but it offers us another opportunity and another, another context in which to study the values and purposes of the public library that are articulated, um, that, are, that are sort of out there in the general public. And, and it's not just, um, our data set didn't just cover, um, you know, hard news stories. We had editorials, we had letters to the editor. So we're not just hearing from journalists, but we're hearing from a wide variety of stakeholders. And it gives us another, another sort of a facet of, a, of, the, or of, of the prism to, to look at how public libraries are valued and, and how these values align or conflict with one another. And it was also an opportunity for us to try out knowledge mobilization and student training strategies. So um, as Aaron pointed out, there's a lot more um, demand on researchers now to really make sure that we're communicating our scholarship in ways like this, in, in ways that the, the So What podcast is doing, helping people understand why that's important. And as researchers, we're not really trained to do it. So as an exemplar of a way that um, a research team can work together to do this kind of work. That's another piece of why the study is important. Um, for myself and for the other students as well, this was really a phenomenal opportunity to um, try out research. And, you know, I really feel like I won the lottery with this group of women because we've never even met each other. And here we are working on all this research, putting together knowledge mobilization pieces, and it's been such a great experience to um, go through the whole cycle of designing a study, collecting data, um, creating a poster even, like Chelsea mentioned, that we got to present at a conference, which I would have never, and I don't think the other students would have had the opportunity to participate in otherwise. And I'm really just grateful to have made all these new friends and have had the um, opportunity to um, participate in research and delve a little bit into what that's like, even over Zoom. That's fantastic. Training the, the next generation of researchers to make the world a better place sounds like a great place to stop. So I want to thank all of you for joining me today, and uh, I look forward to the next time uh, each of you can come on and tell me about the next thing you're working on. This has been another episode of So What? The podcast about library and information science research and why it matters. So What? is created and produced by students at the Faculty of Information and Media Studies at Western University in London, Ontario. Find us online at sowhat.fims.uwo.ca.